Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. How do you win when judges don't like hearing about securitization? Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, August 31st, 2017. Joining us tonight is an old friend, Patricia Rodriguez, a California attorney. Good afternoon to those in the western time zones, and good evening to those in the east. Follow the instructions you received when you called in order to show my studio board that you are waiting with a question, and we'll try to get to you. As a starting point, I want to talk briefly about how to start. You don't necessarily have to follow my specific way of doing things, but you do need to have a plan. As obvious as it is, in today's news, we learned that Wells Fargo misstated, translate that as lie, uh, uh, its position with respect to all the fake accounts, uh, depository accounts that it created. It's not two, two million, it's three million, and there's probably more. And you people who are listening to me and I, we know that if they fake depository accounts, they obviously would be uh, just as likely to fake loan accounts. If they're faking the depository accounts, it makes sense that they could be faking the loan accounts. That's exactly what they did. And with Patricia tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, some of the strategies to employ uh, when the uh, judge, well, no judge, wants to hear about securitization. Uh, it's how, do you, how you use that information, how you use what you know in order to go to conventional attacks and know in your mind what the outcome is going to be when you pursue a line of questioning or you pursue a, a line of objections in court or motions or what have you. So here at Living Lives, uh, DBA Lending Lives, um, our services usually start with uh, a PDR, preliminary document review. And what that is is a 10-minute glance to see whether or not you fall in the ballpark of things 
that we know are wrong in the mortgage and foreclosure marketplace. And then we move on to an in-depth chain of title analysis. And then we move on to my case analysis of all the data points. Um, and incidentally, in the chain of title analysis, um, our paralegal does the work to determine uh, the corporate status of entities and things like that. It's not just what's on your title record. Uh, then we move on to my case analysis where I basically give my thoughts and ideas about uh, what each point means and a review of every single document that's been submitted by the homeowner and every single document we found when we did the in-depth chain of title analysis. It's only then that we can talk about strategy. And that's the point I want to make. People call us dozens of calls every day, frequently at, at their last minute or beyond their last minute. And suddenly they ask us to draft pleadings on an emergency basis. So my answer to that is, first of all, I'm too old to do, to do emergencies, uh, have enough of my own. But more importantly, I can't make up the content. I write pleadings, motions, memorandum of law, like Patricia does, based on facts in your specific case. That's why my pleadings have never been struck as being just a template without regard to the facts. Then we move on to actually writing the pleadings, motions, memos, preparation for hearings on motions to dismiss, demurrers, and motions for summary judgment and, of course, in-depth preparation for trial. You hear the word preparation here. You, they, there's a lot of people who go into the courtroom, and if they're lawyers, they simply have failed to prepare for that hearing, and if they're pro se litigants, they don't know how to. You can't reverse the order in which I do things and expect a good result. People sometimes take my analysis and my report and think all they have to do is throw it up on the judge's desk and say the magic word securitization and they've won. Bad news. Securitization per se is legal. Always was. Common stock traded on the New York Stock Exchange is an example of securitization. It's legal. It's in the way that securitization was executed, in the details that I think is illegal with these remit trusts and has been the base of every case I ever won in foreclosure defense. But I never had a judge. I've had judges say, that this trust doesn't own anything, it's empty, it, you know, every document is suspicious. But I never had a judge say, and I never heard of a judge saying, well, if it was securitized, there's got to be something wrong with it. And yet so many lawyers, so many pro se litigants go in thinking that they only have to say a few words and the judge is going to agree with them. So... Now we turn to lawyer extraordinaire, the legal Wonder Woman of California, my friend and cohort, Patricia Rodriguez. Uh, 
I'll tell you why I like her. Besides being smart and having a good business head, the one thing I like about her is her persistence and willingness to fight for what is right. She's willing to take a pie in the face for her client. She's not afraid to walk into a courtroom. And one reason she's not afraid is that she does what many lawyers don't. She prepares for each hearing, no matter how small. So a little thought before you enter the courtroom might make the difference between success and failure. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, AMGAR, and the Garfield Firm with offices in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, our main number, which is not the number to reach this show, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If my work has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Most of what we do is pro bono, and we need to be supported. So go to the main page, donate, or call that main number and uh, and make a donation of whatever you think you can afford, on a, a one-time basis, a monthly basis, or whatever. Welcome. Patricia Rodriguez to our show and thank you again for volunteering your time to make mortgages and foreclosures more understandable. Thanks so much, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here as always. So I know we had some uh, communication before the show regarding litigation strategies, both to win and to settle. Uh, why don't you give some uh, talk about that and go through the not the whole spectrum because that would take six days, but uh, a, a nice uh, summary of the things that you brought up uh, in our communication uh, of anything from you know cash for keys to uh, getting a judgment in favor of the uh, homeowner. Absolutely. Um, you know, I like to think about it in terms of what techniques do we use to try to get to that end result and then the end result. So breaking them up into those two categories, first looking at our techniques, we uh, implore a 40 checklist cause of action. So we have a checklist of 40 different causes of action, and I like to group them in, and the easiest way for me to process it is there are origination claims, there are servicing claims, and then there are selling claims. And so when we start to focus in on those selling claims that we have talked about before today's radio show, those selling claims have to do with the second market. And again, you're absolutely right that selling them on the second market and securitizing them was actually something most, if not all, agreed to in the deed of trust. What they didn't agree to was it not being done properly. Now, here in California, those issues of chain of title are stronger and you have more standing to bring them and litigate them post-foreclosure. Even Nova says you absolutely have standing once the foreclosure has happened. 
pre-foreclosure, you're looking for an extension of the law, and although you can pursue it, you've got to find that one, that one judge out of a lot that is going to be willing to extend that to pre-foreclosure. And so now we have standing post-foreclosure, or we're looking for an extension pre-foreclosure, so that we can bring up this issue of the chain of title being broken via the securitization not being done properly. The courts, however, have come Let me interrupt. Said, mm-hmm. Let me let me interrupt you there. The the I'd like you are I'd like to enlist you as a, a corroboration uh, for what my what my answer is when either lawyers or mostly pro se litigants or people just looking for a lawyer think that, you know, if you've got a checklist of 40 causes of action, that the more, that more is better. So you should have all 40 in whatever your complaint is. No, that is absolutely not the case, right? You want to hone in on the four or five that are the best that you have, the most salient ones that the facts support. You do not want to overwhelm your judge with too many theories or too much information as a plaintiff, you have to keep it simple. Yeah, I, I think one of the important things about that is um, you already got the deck stacked against you when you go into the courtroom. Um, if you're going to go further and lose the judge with some shotgun approach, he's going to consider your case to be uh, less credible than somebody who focuses in on, like what you're saying, uh, pick four, pick five maybe at most. Um, And that introduces an element of risk that uh, laymen don't understand is an inherent part of the practice of law. You do have to choose between which arrows you're going to fire. And yes, one of the arrows you leave in your quiver and never raise might have been a key to the case, but it's up to the lawyer to make that judgment call as to what that lawyer thinks in this case is going to get traction. That's why you hire a lawyer, among other reasons, for uh, with their skill set in court, too. So... Um, I'm trying to drill in to our audience here uh, the fact that if you are going to bring a lawsuit, frankly, of any kind, and you're going to have 147 causes of action, the judge will stop reading halfway in into your first cause of action. So, That's absolutely. They don't want to read a 30-page so, 40, 50-page document. Well, I had one client that actually submitted a 400-page complaint. <laughs> so no that's why that. I brought <laughs> Right. So I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go go ahead. With, oh, no, you're fine. Uh, um, kind of to piggyback off of that, you know, when it comes to why you're hiring a lawyer, it's for things like knowing that certain jurisdictions in California, the second district, the fourth district, have resoundingly said the fact that it didn't make it into the trust by the closing date makes it voidable and not void, and you still lack standing. 
So it's really imperative that if you're going to file a suit over failed securitization that you're in the first, fifth, or sixth districts where you can still make that allegation. You're probably still going to lose on demur, but you can appeal that decision and maybe make case law to resolve that in the California Supreme Court in the borrower's favor. But what I have found to be even more successful currently with the way the state of the law is in California, if you're going to focus on a wrongful foreclosure case, especially if you're post-foreclosure, because that's really where you have standing. And if you can get a motion to consolidate granted, you can stop from being evicted, and you can really pursue those claims, you should be looking at chain of title issues that have to do with the original lender, either being defunct at the time that the loan was originated or being defunct at the time that there was an alleged transfer. If it's a defunct, forfeited company that has no interest in anything, it cannot possibly transfer that non-existing interest to another entity. So those are really the wrongful foreclosure claims that we see getting traction with the court, with opposing counsel, and enabling better settlements. The one issue you will come up against when you're dealing with those types of claims, one or two issues are the statute of limitations, because your loan was probably originated in 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007. So you're at least 10, maybe 12, 13 years past when this happened. But you need to be able to show that you were not aware of the fact that the original lender became defunct at the time, you know, previous to them making this transfer, and that it was being withheld from you. It was being um, covered up by the defendants. The defendants, likely the banks, were sending you multiple notices from a servicer, from a foreclosure trustee, from so many different entities, you could not possibly have known that the original lender was now defunct, no longer able to transfer anything. The other issue you might come up against is maybe you filed a previous lawsuit, one that was pre-foreclosure, but now you're post-foreclosure. So they're trying to say the ruling in that case precludes any different ruling in this case. But you've got to look at the facts there. Are there additional facts? Is it the same parties? It has to be the identical parties, the identical facts, and the identical issues. So you need to make that clear to the court that these are not the same issues. These are not the same defendants, and these are not the same facts. For instance, the foreclosure trust, the foreclosure trustee sale occurring would not have ha- happened yet. So those would be new facts. All of that speaks to, you know, how do we get in front of the judge How do we get opposing counsel to settle the case? How do we win at trial? But really, there's no civil uh, plaintiff, borrower, that wants to go all the way to trial, that wants to spend money on attorney fees month after month, that wants to spend fees on costs related to calls, related to um, all the various things that go into litigating a case. No one wants to spend those costs involved and the fees involved to go to trial. So a great civil attorney is going to settle 90% of their cases. And how do we settle these cases? We look to settle them if the person doesn't want to keep the property through a short sale if there's no equity or possibly a short pay if there's some equity or some equity could be gained very, you know, with a nominal amount being knocked off the uh, payoff amount. Or we look to do some type of large cash for keys, you know, 45, 50,000 to release their suit, get some additional time in the property and move on. And for some who want to keep the property, who are absolutely adamant about the property, then we're negotiating for a loan modification, perhaps a permanent one with principal reductions. But I caution, as far as the permanent modifications with principal reduction, that is going to be heavily based on your ability to qualify. If you have no income, 
you're not going to get a modification and you're not going to be able to keep the property. And you're paying me as your lawyer to tell you that, to be upfront, to be honest, and to be real with you, and to give you 100% directly the assessment of what you're dealing with, you know, whether you like hearing it or not. So those are really the best ways that we can help borrowers, one, litigate these cases, and two, resolve them. Now, as far as getting a judgment at trial, again, that's for those who can afford to go to trial, can afford the cost of trial, and for that, there is a lot of risk, but a lot of payoff on the other side. So as any other investment, it comes with risk and returns, and we're here to analyze together what those risks are, what the returns are, and the cost-benefit analysis, analysis to you. That's a good summary, a very good summary. Um, you know, on the statute of limitations, there's like two things that are going around in my head. One is there's, there's no statute of limitations, theoretically, there's no statute of limitations <clears throat> on a title claim for, for real property. If you have a deed, you don't have to continue to do something in order to uh, uh, maintain your title. Um, and so uh, if, if somebody does something to that title, like file a lien or encumbrance, um, that is that gives rise, of course, to the wrongful foreclosure or cancellation of instrument or any other claims that you would make for damages against that party for having filed that document. But it's also true that the document that's been filed uh, stays, like everything, on the chain of title. And your deed is still on the chain of title. And if that document that's been filed was a wild deed, theoretically, there is no statute of limitations to bar you from getting it off. There may be plenty of statutes that bar you from recovery of any damages. So um, I've been playing around with that idea, and I think that there's, the devil is always in the details. I think there's something there for those people who just want to uh, stay in their home, uh, uh, retain title, etc., um, and who are being attacked collaterally by a foreclosure, having their title attacked by, by foreclosure. Um, the appropriate claim that I'm pointing, I'm thinking about, uh, we haven't tried this yet, so this is brand new, folks, um, and you probably don't want to try this at home, you need a lawyer, but you may want to attack the mortgage as, an, uh, as basically a wild deed. And the wild deed is something that never had any validity or value to it. So that issue is something that I'm developing right now, and I haven't come to a, a full conclusion on it. Patricia, you have any uh, comments about that? I don't know 
that I have any specifics just hearing it kind of now in our conversation, but I would say that you can definitely do a cancellation of written instruments that does not have a statute of limitations on it, um, but you are going to want some basis for, you know, voiding the wild deed and or voiding the, um, you know, canceling the instruments. So that's where you kind of get that secondary prong of needing a underlying basis for voiding the deed that, um, you know, they attack it on the statute of limitations. Now, I don't know that that's accurate, but that's what the courts are agreeing with them on in terms of that statute of limitations. Yeah, plus the fact that, you know, you can allege any facts, uh, but once you allege it, you have to prove it. It's not enough to allege it. It's not enough to say, well, judge, you ought to take it the rest of the way. Judges are not hired to take it the rest of the way. They're hired to call balls and strikes. And an awful lot of the decisions where people said the judge was biased and all that, the judge was not biased. The judge merely came to the conclusion that in calling balls and strikes, this side won that one, that side won that one, and uh, the ultimate decision is reached. The um, uh, that's why having a lawyer is so important, uh, because for the most part, only a lawyer is going to understand uh, trial procedure and civil procedure. The other point uh, that I wanted to make about the, the whole void and voidable, et cetera, uh, actually two points. One is that res judicata, collateral estoppel, Rooker-Feldman, they only apply if there was a trial on the merits of those claims. If they were dismissed, which is frequently what happens, if they're dismissed, then there's not been adjudication on the merits of that claim, and res judicata, collateral estoppel, Rooker-Feldman don't apply. That I'm sure of. So keep in mind that they will come in and argue. They already raised that in this action, and the judge ruled against them. Uh, uh, res judicata judge, collateral estoppel, um, uh, and they're ugly and fat too. The, the answer is simply that None of those doctrines apply unless there was an adjudication on the merits expressly finding that this claim has been made and this claim has been granted or denied. Then it's res judicata in the future if, as Patricia said, it's between the exact same parties. So one of the reasons that the the bank side of this keeps doing musical chairs with their trustees and with their services and so forth is actually to prevent um, uh, raised judicata being used against them when they repeatedly come back to foreclose on the same property. So last comment about void and voidable. It's absolutely true in California and, frankly, the rest of the country. Um, they have uh, sunk their teeth into this idea that a, 
um, a, a void assignment could be ratified by the investors, supposedly. There's a lot of assumptions behind that that are incorrect. Number one, nobody is going to ratify a transaction that has occurred after the cutoff date because then the REMIC Trust will be doing business in violation of the Internal Revenue Code and the REMIC Trust loses its tax status as a pass-through entity and the investors will be charged not only for the interest, uh, they'll be charged tax on the interest that they receive, but also the principal if it came through the trust, which brings me to the second point. It's not coming from the trust. And the assumption that this instrument is only voidable rests completely on the idea of ratification. There's nobody on earth who would undertake to ratify a bad assignment or a void assignment for a variety of reasons. So in the uh, arguments now that I'm seeing, uh, some lawyers are getting lost in the weeds and in in this whole void versus voidable. The question is, you know, is anything uh, able to be... uh, Uh, voided, and the answer is everything is, practically. Um, It's a false argument, and the courts have latched on to it improperly. I would argue that this instrument, as of the moment that we are in court now, is void. And the fact that it could be ratified in the future is irrelevant to what is going on now. At this moment, it is void, pursuant to law and and all of that. And then add to the argument that the whole reason you never see any ratification and none has ever existed of these late filings after the cutoff date and using, you know, fabricated documents and so forth, is that this entity can only do business for 90 days under the Internal Revenue Code, in which it accumulates all the assets and sets it up for income distribution. If they continue doing business, then it becomes a taxable entity. So you got double taxation. There is nobody acting in the interests of a so-called trust or the beneficiaries would ever ratify the use of a an assignment that was supposedly accepted by the uh, uh, by the trust. Now how does the trust accept anything? By the trustee. So the question becomes did the trustee accept this assignment? Because if he did then he really violated something. And 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 put the entire tax status of all the beneficiaries at risk. And the the outcome of that, 
I think, and I'm seeing some evidence in support of this theory, is that judges are taking a second look and saying, yeah, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to say that this is this could be ratified and that it is uh, therefore voidable and not void. It is void at that moment. And that's the point that I think needs to be driven home. Patricia? Yes, absolutely in agreement with all of that. All right. So... Let me ask you a question. I, I brought it up before, and I, I didn't ask you about it. Here, pr probably because of the nature of my my work, we get tons of calls from people whose house is up for sale in an hour or a day. The And, you know, that expression that, your emergency is not my emergency. Well, you know, of course, we want to help. We want to help uh, people, but basically, we limit our assistance to after the sale uh, in putting together a claim for wrongful foreclosure. How do you deal with these people who come in with what they think are emergencies? Well, you know, we try to do, a, you know, a screening, an initial screening, and really assess if their emergency is truly an emergency in the way they think it is. You know, we um, like to do, you know, a pre-evaluation, basically, and then we do our more thorough evaluation. If that pre-evaluation, we've identified that it is truly an emergency, then we identify whether or not we can assist at all in that emergency. For some t sometimes in those instances, the borrower is going to have to file an improper uh, bankruptcy in order to get themselves more time and to get us involved in a way that we can actually assist. In other instances, um, you know, again, you may be right that the best we can do is deal with it after the foreclosure sale has happened and get a lawsuit on then. Generally speaking, we need at least three business days in order to file a complaint and have it recorded. We need at least five business days, and that is the absolute bare minimum, to have it um, filed, served, and recorded, and a temporary restraining order request made. Um, so we need some time to be able to get in and get involved. But, again, we try to take a case-by-case -case analysis to, to assess what, if anything, can we do to help. Yeah, and, of course, the other thing that I find uh, with people is, even though uh, most of what we do is pro bono here, when we when we quote a price, especially to the emergency people, they start bargaining, and we don't bargain. Um, but here's my statement, and you can say what you want, Patricia. You basically came to me. I've had to say this to probably hundreds of clients. You basically came to me because. You think I'm a strong litigator, and you think that I'm very persistent and that I will do everything conceivable to win and that I won't give in. And the very first thing you want me to do is cave on my own fees. Now, if I accepted your premise, I wouldn't be who you want. 
So I have to chime in there because if you think it's difficult for you as a man in the industry, you have no idea what it's like being a woman in the industry. They immediately think that they can negotiate with me on my fees, even though my fees are reflective of how much it costs me to litigate the case, right? That's not all profit. We're talking about overhead. We're talking about subcontractors. I might be seeing a small percentage of that. And now what you're asking me to do is to forego that small percentage and make nothing off the case, possibly even lose money off of the case. And so in my experience, you know, there, unfortunately sexism is well and alive. So I have a business manager who handles that aspect of things because seemingly in my experience, uh, people, you know, are less likely to argue with and try to negotiate down a male counterpart that they think are, is on their equal than a female that they think, you know, they can um, you know, just aggressively get to submit on something like that. Yeah, it's like, do they want you strong or do they not? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, absolutely, if, right. If, you know, they can ask all they want, but the answer is no. Right, and it's also because they're doing themselves a disservice, right? If they're offering to pay less fees and you accept the less fees, then you have less money to litigate their case, and you're going up against these entities that have unlimited amounts of resources. So it's like if you're not willing to put your money where your mouth is and really put the money up necessary to try to get money knocked off or for you to keep this property or for you to just be living here so you're not paying to live somewhere else that's even more expensive – then you got to be willing to, to pay for those services and not think that, as we know, anything in this world comes for free. Right. I mean, I, I, I do understand how homeowners feel that the whole system screwed them because they're right in that feeling. But Oh, yeah, I agree with that, and, too. <laughs> I understand also that lawyers are part of the system, and so there's a part of them that maybe never liked lawyers to begin with and thinks that because we're part of the system that we're part of the problem that they had. We didn't sell them the loan, and we didn't sell the loan to somebody else. We had right. nothing to do with that. Right. And, and the, the fact of the matter is you and I sit here as Robin Hood, taking from the rich to give to the poor. And like you said, there's going to be a pie on my face because Robin Hood always has the kings and queens coming after them to shut them down. So, you know, we, we deal with a lot in order to give as much as we can, and borrowers have to understand that they're part in it. Like they have to be willing to participate not just with the payments but with the litigation and really, you know, have their interest involved and, and be a part of that process. Yeah, I, and, you know, uh, uh, the other thing I'll say, I know this will probably get me in trouble with a bunch of lawyers, but if you've got a lawyer who says that all you have to do is pay $500 a month, you're going to get what you pay for, which is practically nothing. My hourly rate right now, I'm 70 years old, I've been a litigator for 40 years, uh, and I'm an expert witness on the securitization of debt. My hourly rate is $650 per hour. And sometimes I charge by the hour, so any part thereof. So if you're paying, if you want 
to hire somebody who actually knows what they're doing, and you're paying $500 a month, then even if their fees, even if they're young and and smart and whatever, even if their fees are down to 250 an hour, you're only paying for two hours of time. Now, i got to tell you that every time a lawyer picks up a file, in order to reacquaint himself with the file, he's already spending a half an hour or 45 minutes. So if it actually comes down to writing a pleading or going to court and preparing and doing research and doing analysis and thinking the things through, file analysis, they can't possibly do it, like Patricia just said. They can't possibly do it for that. So if you're paying $500 a, a, a month, then what you're doing is basically in a, put yourself in a holding pattern in the hope that you might buy some time. But you're certainly not on the path that Patricia and I would want you to be on, which is to bring the thing to a successful conclusion for you, whether it's settlement or judgment or what have you. And I, I, you know, I also get that the idea of only paying 500 a month when your payments used to be 2,000 seems very attractive. But is it really worth it to do that when every day you wake up not knowing if in a few days you're going to be thrown out of the house? Isn't it time to get on with your life? Even though the, the banks did wrong, at some point it's a personal decision that you must decide. Do I want to put myself into this? And if you do, then be prepared to pay for it. So... Um, oh, wow. We only got two minutes left. Okay. So, in closing, Patricia, <laughs> um, what would you say is the current status of homeowner versus bank? David and Goliath. But David has a lot of really sharp stones that can be thrown and if hit in the right place it will knock Goliath out you know so the thing that I leave everybody with the thing that I want to impress most upon borrowers is do not bury your head in the sand do not wait until the last minute seek help go to somebody now doesn't need to be me doesn't need to be Neil but go to somebody and get help don't wait until right. it's too late Boy, that is absolutely the best advice either one of us could give. Um, I, I, I can't stress strongly enough that civil procedure, trial procedure, are not done by intuition. They're done by established rules, and if you don't know the rules, you're going to get thrown out of court along with the rest of your defenses and your case. It's why you do need a lawyer, and the lawyers need to pay more attention to the rules themselves, and right, the so lawyers need, need to be better prepared when they, when they right, go into so, court. You know, the important part is know your rights and be able to enforce your rights. Go to someone who knows your rights and can enforce your rights 
and be part of that 5%. Only 5% of Americans fight a foreclosure. It's a very small percentage. It's a lot of people because there's a lot of people in America, but it's a small percentage. Be part of that 5%. Be part of the small percentage of people who will not be bullied, who will not be taken down by the big banks, and will not go quietly into the night. Very good, Patricia. All right, we're at the end here. Thank you, for Patricia Rodriguez, and we'll see you back next week. Thank you very much, Patricia, for your time. Great. Thank you, Neil. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.